Monday, September 21st, 1942. Dearest Kitty, Today I'll tell you the general news here in the annex. A lamp has been mounted above my divan bed so that in the future, when I hear the guns going off, I'll be able to pull the cord and switch on the light. I can't use it at the moment because we are keeping our window open a little day and night. The male members of the Van Dan contingent have built a very handy wood-stained foot safe with real screens. Up to now, this glorious cupboard has been located in Peter's room, but in the interest of fresh air, it's been moved to the attic. Where it once stood, there's now a shelf. I advised Peter to put his table underneath the shelf, add a nice rug and hang his own cupboard where the table now stands. That might make his little cubbyhole more comfy, though I certainly wouldn't like to sleep there. Mrs. Fandan is unbearable. I'm continually being scolded for my incessant chatter when I'm upstairs. I simply let the words bounce right off me. Madam now has a new trick up her sleeve, trying to get out of washing the pots and pans. If there's a bit of food left in the bottom of the pan, she leaves it to spoil instead of transferring it to a glass dish. Then in the afternoon, when Margaret is stuck with cleaning all the pots and pans, Madam exclaims, Oh, poor Margaret! You have so much work to do. Every other week, Mr. Clayman brings me a couple of books written for girls my age. I'm enthusiastic about the Utahoe series. I've enjoyed all of Sissy van Maxfeld books very much. I've read The Zanius Summer four times, and the ludicrous situations still make me laugh. Father and I are currently working on our family tree, and he tells me something about each person as we go along. I've begun my schoolwork. I'm working hard at French, cramming five irregular verbs into my head every day, but I've forgotten much too much of what I learned in school. Peter has taken up his English with great reluctance. A few school books have just arrived, and I brought a large supply of notebooks, pencils, erasers, and labels from home. Pim wants me to help him with his Dutch lessons. I'm perfectly willing to tutor him in exchange for his assistance with French and other subjects. But he makes the most unbelievable mistakes. I sometimes listen to the Dutch broadcasts from London. Prince Bernard recently announced that Princess Juliana is expecting a baby in January, which I think is wonderful. No one here understands why I take such interest in the royal family. A few nights ago, I was the topic of discussion, and we all decided I was an ignoramus. As a result, I threw myself into my schoolwork the next day. Since I have little desire to still be a freshman when I'm fourteen or fifteen, the fact that I'm hardly allowed to read anything was also discussed. At the moment, mothers reading gentlemen, wives and servants, and of course I'm not allowed to read it. First, I have to be more intellectually developed, like my genius of a sister. Then we discussed my ignorance of philosophy, psychology, and physiology. It's true I don't know anything about these subjects. But maybe I'll be smarter next year. I've come to the shocking conclusion that I have only one long-sleeved dress and three cardigans to wear in the winter. Father's given me permission to knit a white wool sweater. The yarn isn't very pretty, but it will be warm, and that's what counts. Some of our clothing was left with friends, but unfortunately, we won't be able to get to it until after the war, provided it's still there, of course. 
I just finished writing something about Mrs. Van Dan when she walked into the room. Thump! I slammed the book shut. Hey, Anne, can't I even take a peek? No, Mrs. Van Dan. Just the last page, then. No, not even the last page, Mrs. Van Dan. Of course, I nearly died, since the particular page contained a rather unflattering description of her. There's something happening every day, but I'm too tired and lazy to write it all down. Yours, Anne. Friday, September twenty-fifth, nineteen forty-two. Dearest Kitty, Father has a friend, a man in his mid-seventies named Mister Dreer, who's sick, poor, and deaf as a post. At his side, like a useless appendage, is his wife, twenty-seven years younger and equally poor, whose arms and legs are loaded with real and fake bracelets and rings left over from more prosperous days. This Mister Dreer has already been a great nuisance to Father. And I've always admired the saintly patience with which he handled this pathetic old man on the phone. When we were still living at home, Mother used to advise him to put a gramophone in front of the receiver, one that would repeat every three minutes. Yes, Mister Dreer, and no, Mister Dreer, since the old man never understood a word of Father's lengthy replies anyway. Today, Mister Dreer phoned the office and asked Mister Kugler to come and see him. Mr. Kugler wasn't in the mood and said he would send Meep, but Meep cancelled the appointment. Mrs. Dreer called the office three times, but since Meep was reportedly out the entire afternoon, she had to imitate Beb's voice. Downstairs in the office, as well as upstairs in the annex, there was great hilarity. Now each time the phone rings, Beb says, "That's Mrs. Dreer," and Meep has to laugh so that the people on the other end of the line are greeted with an impolite giggle. Can't you just picture it? This has got to be the greatest office in the whole wide world. The bosses and the office girls have such fun together. Some evenings I go to the Van Dans for a little chat. We eat mothball cookies and have a good time. Recently, the conversation was about Peter. I said that he often pats me on the cheek, which I don't like. They asked me in a typically grown-up way whether I could ever learn to love Peter like a brother, since he loves me like a sister. Oh no, I said. But what I was thinking was, oh, ugh, just imagine. I added that Peter's a bit stiff, perhaps because he's shy. Boys who aren't used to being around girls are like that. I must say that the annex committee is very creative. Listen to the scheme they've come up with to get message to Mister Brooks, an Optaker Company sales representative and friend who surreptitiously hidden some of our things for us. They're going to type a letter to a store owner in Southern Zealand, who is indirectly one of Optaker's customers, and ask him to fill out a form and send it back to the enclosed self-addressed envelope. Father will write the address on the envelope himself. Once the letter is returned from Zealand, the form can be removed, and a handwritten message confirming the father is alive can be inserted in the envelope. This way, Mr. Brooks can read the letter without suspecting the ruse. They chose the province of Zealand because it's close to Belgium, and because no one is allowed to travel there without a special permit. An ordinary salesman like Mr. Brooks would never be granted a permit. Yesterday, father put on another hat. Groggy with sleep, he stumbled off to bed. His feet were cold, so I lent him my bed socks. Five minutes later, he flung them to the floor. Then he pulled the blankets over his head because the light bothered him. The lamp was switched off. And he gingerly poked his head out from under the covers. 
It was all very amusing. We started talking about the fact that Peter says Margaret is a Batinsky. Suddenly, Daddy's voice was heard from the depths. Sits on her butt, you mean? Mousy, the cat, is becoming nicer to me as time goes by, but I'm still somewhat afraid of her. Yours and Sunday, September twenty-seven, nineteen forty-two. Dearest Kitty, Mother and I had a so-called discussion today, but the annoying part is that I burst into tears. I can't help it. Daddy is always nice to me, and he also understands me much better. At moments like these, I can't stand Mother. It's obvious that I am a stranger to her. She doesn't even know what I think about the most ordinary things. We were talking about maids and the fact that you're supposed to refer to them as domestic help these days. She claimed that when the war is over, that's what they'll want to be called. I didn't quite see it that way. When she added that I talk about later so often and that I act as if I were such a lady, even though I'm not, but I don't think building sand castles in the air is such a terrible thing to do, as long as you don't take it too seriously. At any rate. Daddy usually comes to my defense. Without him, I won't be able to stick it out here. I won't get along with Margaret very well either, even though our family never has the same kind of outbursts they have upstairs. I find it far from pleasant. Margaret's and mother's personalities are so alien to me. I understand my girlfriends better than my own mother. Isn't that a shame? For the umpteenth time, Mrs. Van Dan is sulking. She's very moody and has been removing more and more of her belongings and locking them up. It's too bad Mother doesn't repay every Fandan disappearing act with a Frank disappearing act. Some people, like the Fandans, seem to take special delight not only in raising their own children but in helping others raise theirs. Margaret doesn't need it since she's naturally good, kind, and clever, perfection itself. But I seem to have enough mischief for the two of us. More than once, the air has been filled with the Fandans' admonitions and my saucy replies. Father and mother always defend me fiercely. Without them, I won't be able to jump back into the fray with my usual composure. They keep telling me I should talk less, mind my own business, and be more modest. But I seem doomed to failure. If father weren't so patient, I'd have long ago given up hope of ever meeting my parents' quite moderate expectations. If I take a small helping of a vegetable I love and eat potatoes instead, the Vandans, especially Mrs. Vandan, can't get over how spoiled I am. Come on, Anne, eat some more vegetables," she says. "No, thank you, ma'am," I reply. "The potatoes are more than enough. Vegetables are good for you. Your mother says so too. Have some more," she insists, until father intervenes and upholds my right to refuse a dish I don't like. Then Mrs. Van D really flies off the handle. You should have been at our house, where children were brought up the way they should be. I don't call this a proper upbringing. Anne is terribly spoiled. I'd never allow that. If Anne were my daughter, this is always how her tirades begin and end. If Anne were my daughter, thank goodness I'm not. But to get back to the subject of raising children, yesterday a silence fell after Mrs. Van D finished her little speech. Father then replied, "I think Anne is very well brought up. At least she's learned not to respond to your interminable sermons. As far as the vegetables are concerned, all I have to say is, look who's calling the cattle black." Mrs. Van D was soundly defeated.
The pot calling the kettle black refers, of course, to Madame herself, since she can't tolerate beans or any kind of cabbage in the evening because they give her gas. But I could say the same. What a dope, don't you think? In any case, let's hope she stops talking about me. It's so funny to see how quickly Mrs. Van Dan flushes. I don't, and it secretly annoys her no end. Yours, Anne. Monday, September twenty-eighth, nineteen forty-two. Dearest Kitty, I had to stop yesterday, though I was nowhere near finished. I'm dying to tell you about another one of our clashes, but before I do, I'd like to say this. I think it's odd that grown-ups quarrel so easily and so often in about such petty matters. Up to now, I always thought bickering was just something children did, and that they outgrew it. Often, of course, there's sometimes a reason to have a real quarrel, but the verbal exchanges that take place here are just plain bickering. I should be used to the fact that these quarrels are daily occurrences, but I'm not, and never will be, as long as I am the subject of nearly every discussion. They criticize everything, and I mean everything. About me, my behaviour, my personality, my manners—every inch of me, from head to toe and back again—is the subject of gossip and debate. Harsh words and shouts are constantly being flung at my head, though I'm absolutely not used to it. According to the powers that be, I'm supposed to grin and bear it, but I can't. I have no intention of taking their insults lying down. I'll show them that Anne Frank wasn't born yesterday. They'll sit up and take notice and keep their big mouths shut when I make them see they ought to attend to their own manners instead of mine. How dare they act that way? It's simply barbaric. I've been astonished time and again at such rudeness and most of all at such stupidity. But as soon as I've gotten used to the idea, and that shouldn't take long, I'll give them a taste of their own medicine, and then they'll change their tune. Am I really as bad-mannered, headstrong, stubborn, pushy, stupid, lazy, etc., etc., as the Van Dan say I am? No, of course not. I know I have my faults and shortcomings, but they blow them out of proportion. If you only knew, Kitty, how I seethe when they scold and mock me. It won't take long before I explode with pent-up rage. But enough of that. I've bored you long enough with my quarrels. And yet I can't resist adding a highly interesting dinner conversation. Somehow we landed on the subject of Pym's extreme difference. His modesty is a well-known fact, which even the stupidest person won't dream of questioning. All of a sudden, Mrs. Van Dan, who feels the need to bring herself into every conversation, remarked, "I'm very modest and retiring too, much more so than my husband." Have you ever heard anything so ridiculous? This sentence clearly illustrates that she's not exactly what you call modest. Mister Van Dan, who felt obliged to explain the much more so than my husband, answered calmly, "I have no desire to be modest and retiring. In my experience, you get a lot further by being pushy." And turning to me, he added, "Don't be modest and retiring, Anne. It will get you nowhere." Mother agreed completely with this viewpoint. But as usual, Mrs. Van Dan had to add her two cents. This time, however, instead of addressing me directly, she turned to my parents and said, "You must have a strange outlook on life to be able to say that to Anne. Things were different when I was growing up, though they probably haven't changed much since then, except in your modern household." This was a direct hit at mother's modern child-rearing methods, which she's defended on many occasions. 
Mrs. Van Dan was so upset her face turned bright red. People who flush easily become even more agitated when they feel themselves getting hot under the collar, and they quickly lose to their opponents. The non-flushed mother, who now wanted to have the matter over and done with as quickly as possible, paused for a moment to think before she replied, "Well, Mrs. Van Dan, I agree that it's much better if a person isn't overmodest. My husband, Margaret, and Peter are all exceptionally modest." Your husband, Anne, and I, though not exactly the opposite, don't let ourselves be pushed around, Mrs. Van Dan. Oh, but Mrs. Frank, I don't understand what you mean. Honestly, I'm extremely modest in retiring. How can you say that I'm pushy, Mother? I didn't say you were pushy, but no one would describe you as having a retiring disposition, Mrs. Van Dee. I'd like to know in what way I'm pushy. If I didn't look out for myself here, no one else would. And I'd soon starve, but that doesn't mean I'm not as modest and retiring as your husband. Mother had no choice but to laugh at this ridiculous self-defence, which irritated Mrs. Van Dam. Not exactly a born debater, she continued her magnificent account in the mixture of German and Dutch until she got so tangled up in her own words that she finally rose from her chair and was just about to leave the room when her eye fell on me. You should have seen her, as luck would have it. The moment Mrs. Van Dee turned around, I was shaking my head in a combination of compassion and irony. I wasn't doing it on purpose, but I'd followed her tirade so intently that my reaction was completely involuntary. Mrs. Van Dee wheeled around and gave me a tongue lashing, hard, Germanic, mean and vulgar, exactly like some fat, red-faced fishwife. It was a joy to behold. If I could draw, I'd like to have sketched her as she was then. She struck me as so comical. That silly little scatterbrain. I've learned one thing: you only really get to know a person after a fight. Only then can you judge their true character. Yours, Anne. Tuesday, September twenty-ninth, nineteen forty-two. Dearest Kitty, the strangest things happen to you when you're in hiding. Try to picture this: because we don't have a bathtub, we wash ourselves in a washtub, and because there's only hot water in the office. The seven of us take turns making the most of this great opportunity. But since none of us are alike and are all plagued by varying degrees of modesty, each member of the family has selected a different place to wash. Peter takes a bath in the office kitchen, even though it has a glass door. When it's time for his bath, he goes round to each of us in turn and announces that we shouldn't walk past the kitchen for the next half hour. He considers this measure to be sufficient. Mr. Van Dee takes his bath upstairs, figuring that the safety of his own room outweighs the difficulty of having to carry the hot water up all those stairs. Mrs. Van Dee has yet to take a bath; she is waiting to see which is the best place. Father bathes in the private office and mother in the kitchen behind a fire screen, while Margaret and I have declared the front office to be our bathing grounds. Since the curtains are drawn on Saturday afternoon, we scrub ourselves in the dark. While the one who isn't in the bath looks out the window through a chink in the curtains and gazes in wonder at the endlessly amusing people, a week ago I decided I didn't like the spot and have been on the lookout for more comfortable bathing quarters. It was Peter who gave me the idea of setting my washtub in the spacious office bathroom. I can sit down, turn on the light, lock the door, pour out the water without anyone's help, and all without the fear of being seen. 
I used my lovely bathroom for the first time on Sunday, and strange as it may seem, I like it better than any other place. The plumber was at work downstairs on Wednesday, moving the water pipes and drains from the office bathroom to the hallway so the pipes won't freeze during a cold winter. The plumber's visit was far from pleasant. Not only were we not allowed to run water during the day, but the bathroom was also off limits. I'll tell you how we handle this problem. You may find it unseemly of me to bring it up, but I'm not so prudish about matters of this kind. On the day of our arrival, Farah and I improvised a chamber pot, sacrificing a canning jar for this purpose. For the duration of the plumber's visit, canning jars were put into service during the daytime to hold our calls of nature. As far as I was concerned, this wasn't half as difficult as having to sit still all day and not say a word. You can imagine how hard that was for Miss Quack. Quack, quack. On ordinary days, we have to speak in a whisper. Not being able to talk or move at all is ten times worse. After three days of constant sitting, my backside was stiff and sore. Nightly calisthenics helped. Yours, Anne. Thursday, October first, nineteen forty-two. Dear Kitty, yesterday I had a horrible fright. At eight o'clock, the doorbell suddenly rang. All I could think of was that someone was coming to get us. You know who I mean. But I calmed down when everybody swore it must have been either pranksters or the mailman. The days here are very quiet. Mister Levinson, a little Jewish pharmacist and chemist, is working for Mister Kugler in the kitchen. Since he's familiar with the entire building. We're in constant dread that he'll take it into his head to go have a look at what used to be the laboratory. We're as still as baby mice. Who would have guessed three months ago that Quicksilver Anne would have to sit so quietly for hours on end? And what's more, that she could. Mrs. Van Dan's birthday was the twenty-ninth. Though we didn't have a large celebration, she was showered with flowers, simple gifts, and good food. Apparently, the red carnations from her spouse are a family tradition. Let me pause a moment on the subject of Mrs. Van Dan and tell you that her attempts to flirt with father are a constant source of irritation to me. She pats him on the cheek and head, hikes up her skirt, and makes so-called witty remarks in an effort to get Pim's attention. Fortunately, he finds her neither pretty nor charming, so he doesn't respond to her flirtations. As you know. I'm quite a jealous type, and I can't abide her behaviour. After all, Mother doesn't act that way toward Mister Van D, which is what I told Missus Van D right to her face. From time to time, Peter can be very amusing. He and I have one thing in common: we like to dress up, which makes everyone laugh. One evening, we made our appearance with Peter in one of her mother's skin-tight dresses and me in a suit. He wore a hat; I had a cap on. The grown-ups split their sides laughing, and we enjoyed ourselves every bit as much. Bab bought new skirts for Margaret and me at the Bayenkopf. The fabric is hideous, like the burlap bag potatoes come in. Just the kind of thing the department stores wouldn't dare sell in the olden days. Now costing twenty-four guilders and seven point seven five guilders. We have a nice treat in store. Babs ordered a correspondence course in shorthand for Margaret, Peter, and me. Just you wait. By this time next year, we'll be able to take perfect shorthand. In any case, learning to write a secret code like that is really interesting. I have a terrible pain in my index finger, so I can't do any ironing. What luck! 
Mr. Van Dan wants me to sit next to him at the table, since Margaret doesn't eat enough to suit him. Fine with me. I like changes. There's always a tiny black cat roaming around the yard, and it reminds me of my dear sweet Morgan. Another reason I welcome the change is that Mama's always carping at me, especially at the table. Now Margaret will have to bear the brunt of it, or rather, won't, since Mother doesn't make such sarcastic remarks to her. Not to that paragon of virtue. I'm always teasing Margaret about being a paragon of virtue these days, and she hates it. Maybe it will teach her not to be such a goody-goody. High time she learned. To end this hodgepodge of news, a particularly amusing joke told by Mr. Van Dyke: What goes click ninety-nine times and clack once? A centipede with a clubfoot. Bye bye, and.